Good evening. Um, I think everybody in this room knows this, but just for the record, I'm Sanford Unger, president of Goucher College, and uh, very pleased to welcome you tonight for our sixth annual Dr. Myra Berman Kurtz Class of 1966 seminar. Uh, the Kurtz seminar was endowed by the late Myra Berman Kurtz and her husband, Dr. Stuart Kurtz, whom you'll hear from in a moment. And the idea uh, that we came up with working together, uh, now beginning to be a while ago, seven or so years ago, was to um, present speakers at uh, Goucher who will inspire our students to think about very different fields and ideas about what to do with their lives. And uh, Myra told a story that uh, as a senior at Goucher, I think, she had been inspired by a lecture she attended to pursue a career in the sciences. And so she wanted to be sure that we uh, presented speakers who would be inspirational to people. And we've uh, had quite a variety of people. She was a, Myra was a valued alumna, an accomplished research scientist, <coughs> and for us, a philanthropic role model. She graduated from Goucher, as I said, in 1966. Magna cum laude went on to receive her PhD in microbial genetics from Harvard and created a very distinguished and successful career as a research scientist. Uh, she's still an inspiration to us, and we're very happy to uh, keep her memory alive <coughs> Excuse me. through this seminar. I want to recognize Stuart Kurtz and uh, Gail Oster and uh, Rachel Kurtz, uh, whom we're privileged to have with us every year on this occasion. And uh, you should stand up and be recognized by everybody, all three of you. And Stuart, you're going to say a few words, and then I'll introduce our speaker. Thank you. I'm very pleased that we have um, Professor uh, Rochelle Mellon to speak with us uh, in this uh, sixth Meyer Berman Kurtz seminar. Um, I also want to thank um, President uh, Sandy Unger and Goucher College for all the efforts that they've made in uh, helping these seminars become so special. Um, I'm sure Myra would have been pleased that her legacy in support of Goucher is being used this way. Um, Professor Millen's work coincidentally overlaps a lot of um, much of what Meyer herself had seen as uh, some of the most critical issues uh, to be understood and addressed. The, um, in particular, the status of women in society as a whole and in religion in particular. Meyer used to say that the true measure of any society is how that society treats women. Um, Myra believed that each generation of students really can learn through stories told by accomplished people with vision and a passion for justice. Um, Rochelle Millen is yet another example of such a person, as um, my family would phrase it, uh, such a mensch. Um, thank you. Well, just to uh, <clears throat> remind everybody, uh, we've had we've really had some wonderfully distinguished speakers. Uh, vaccine developer Dr. Catherine Jensen, Jansen, sorry, um, writer and activist Cotty Martin, Judy Lewent, uh, graduated from Goucher in 1970, was chief financial officer at Merck, which, uh, by the way, was where uh, Myra also worked, and uh, and a, just a, a a steady run of interesting people. Tonight, we're honored to welcome Dr. Rochelle Millen, who is professor of religion at Wittenberg University in Ohio, as our speaker. And you know, it's interesting, we, uh, 
and wonderful distinguished faculty here, but it really is nice sometimes to bring in people from other colleges and universities to share their particular expertise with us and uh, and get a get a taste of how things are seen and taught elsewhere. At at uh, Wittenberg, Dr. Millen teaches courses on the Jewish tradition, the history of anti-Semitism, Judaism in the modern world, and uh, women and religion. And uh, she's a very distinguished author, well-published, has spoken in many different places, and is uh, greatly, greatly respected for her expertise in this field. Uh, she's co-founder and for seven years uh, served as co-chair of the Religion, Holocaust, and Genocide Group of the American Academy of Religion. Uh, she earned her BA at the Stern College for Women of Yeshiva University and her MA and PhD from McMaster's University. She's been at Wittenberg University since 1988. Her talk this evening is entitled Spiritual Sisters, Reflections on Women and Religion, and she'll speak about the uh, uh, creation story in Genesis and its implications for women and men across contemporary Western religious cultures. Uh, please join me in welcoming, <coughs> sorry, welcoming Dr. Rochelle Millen to Goucher College as the sixth annual Myra Berman Kurtz seminar speaker. Thank you for your kind words of introduction and good evening to you all. It is an honor for me to be here this evening at Goucher College to speak in tribute to Women's History Month and in memory of noted microbiologist Dr. Myra Berman Kurtz, a Goucher alumna. Indeed, these two occasions are closely intertwined. For Dr. Berman Kurtz viewed herself not only as a scientist, but also as a mentor to young women whose talents and proclivities led them to careers in the sciences. She knew firsthand the challenges of being a woman in what had been, and to an extent still is, a man's world, the world of scientific research. She understood that professional women are often insufficiently recognized because of their gender. That even now, as recently reported in the New York Times, women often earn close to 20% less than men with the identical job description. That I speak this evening in memory of an outstanding alumna of a small and excellent women's college, a person who saw as part of her mission the guiding of other women in science resonates deeply with me. I'm a graduate of a small women's college in many ways similar to Goucher, as you heard from President Unger, Stern College for Women of Yeshiva University. And I also teach at a small liberal arts university. And I'm also the daughter of European immigrants for whom the education of their four American-born children was of paramount importance. And that women's history is celebrated this month having developed from Women's History Day in 1978 to Women's History Month in 1987, is truly fitting. Dr. Berman Kurtz would surely have seen herself as part of modern women's history, as do I, having completed my PhD just after my 40th birthday. <clears throat> 
While learning more about Dr. Berman Kurtz on the internet, I was moved to see that colleagues dedicated several scholarly articles and journal issues in her memory. The April 2008 issue of the Journal of the Molecular and Cellular Biology is so dedicated. Women's history, a tribute to the late distinguished alumna of Goucher, an emphasis on the pursuit of learning for women. All come together this evening in your giving me the opportunity to speak about two areas of scholarship which have engaged me over many years, religion and women's studies, and their significant interconnection in Western culture. Two brief introductory comments which frame my discussion. First, in the New York Times on October 2010, the op-ed reporter Nicholas Kristof wrote a column titled, Test Your Savvy on Religion. He began with these words, and I quote, The New York Times reported recently on a Pew Research Center poll in which religious people turned out to be remarkably uninformed about religion. Almost half of Catholics didn't understand communion, most Protestants didn't know that Martin Luther started the Reformation. Almost half of Jews didn't realize Maimonides was Jewish. And atheists were among the best informed about religion. End of quote. Sadly, these statistics are often borne out in my classroom and those of my colleagues at Wittenberg despite the fact that our university is named after the church at which Luther posted his 95 theses and is part of the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the large liberal Lutheran group in the United States. Some of you may think, Genesis, I know the creation story or myth or narrative. It's old hat. I hope this talk, brief as it is, will give you a new understanding of these chapters, and I've asked um, a translation of the first three chapters to be handed out to each of you. I will, on occasion, point to spe specific verses. I'll quote a few, but mostly I'll just leave a few seconds for you to look them up. Um, so I hope this brief talk will give you a new understanding of these chapters, especially as they relate to perspectives on women in Christianity and Judaism. My second comment with which I frame this discussion goes back further. In 1975, after three years of part-time study, begun when our children were five, seven, and nine years old, I received my MA in philosophy. Sharing the news with my mother-in-law brought an unexpected response. Oh, Rochelle, she enthused. You think just like a man. <laughs> Even in those early days of consciousness raising, I had developed a sense of humor about sexist assumptions and comments. It's a good thing we're on the phone, I said to my husband. She can't see me laughing. Such strict gender divisions, the influence of abstract theory upon real-world dynamics, 
were held by religious traditions and the ordinary people who are part of them. In this case, the ordinary person, my mother-in-law, was an American-born statistical typist, a high school graduate very involved in the Boston community, whose youngest child happened to be my husband. In her home, the kitchen was solely her domain. Even I was refused entry. Essentialist notions of gender were pivotal in her thinking, despite the salary she earned. We've come a long way, baby, as the jingle goes. It is true that it is no longer unusual to see women with master's degrees in philosophy or female religious leaders. Women increasingly serve on the boards of churches and synagogues and are part of the decision-making processes that affect their members. Women's knowledge of religion and religious texts, despite Christoph's column, has increased. And the abundance of books about women and Judaism and women and Christianity indicate the perceived need to address the issue of women within each tradition. Despite the apologetics, despite the fact that I often have students who have never read even parts of the Hebrew Bible or the Gospels or the Pauline letters, I want to address issues about Jewish and Christian women, spiritual sisters, as it were, whose traditions are both similar and different in how the female is understood. It is that long way, baby, that we've all traveled as addressed in the text of the Hebrew Bible, the basis of the Jewish and Christian faiths upon which I wish to focus. One might ask at the outset, why is it that the Bible begins with the creation of the world? After all, the Torah, the Pentateuch, or five books, relates the history of the Jewish people and serves, in a sense, as a constitution for the Jewish people. How should one live as a Jewish person, as part of a family, a community, or the larger world? The Torah indicates paths to follow in the lived, everyday experience of being a Jewish person. So why the story of God's creation of the world? Why the tale of the first human beings? Perhaps the Bible should begin with chapter 12 in Genesis, with Abraham, the first Jew. Or chapter 12 in the book of Exodus, when the first mitzvah, or commandment, is given to the people. I would say that the Bible begins with creation, in order to establish certain theological ideas, concepts which in Semitic thinking are always articulated concretely rather than in abstract form. In the first chapter of Genesis, with which we will not deal very much this evening, although you do have the translation, God creates the physical universe, the world into which human beings are put, It is God's creation ex nihilo, God's creating the world out of nothing, the complex physical world which represents pure justice. The second chapter, in contrast, is the creation of the historical moral universe, 
the world in which there is a prohibition, right? That's what makes it moral. Of every tree in the garden, and I quote 2.17, of every tree in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and bad you may not eat. Not everything is permitted. Discipline and self-control are required. It seems to me that the Torah commences with the creation story in order that we gain an understanding of exactly who the human creature is. If the Torah is to delineate a system of living, the parameters of a society, it must begin with the notion of who the human being is to whom the text is addressed. Does this creature easily distinguish right from wrong? Is it jealous, envious, greedy, peace-loving, playful, aggressive? What is the nature of the human material from which society will be constructed? Or, to put it in the terms of the historian of religion, Mircea Eliada, every tradition, he says, has a fundamental story of origins, a myth which responds to the query, how did the world get to be the way it is? Clearly, the early chapters of Genesis outline an answer. The human creature, or earth creature, as I shall designate this being, is assigned two purposes. The first, in Genesis 1.28, if you take a look, is to have dominion over the earth. Um, Be fruitful and multiply and subdue or dominate the earth. To be a created creative being to partner with God in the work of creating and improving the universe. The second purpose is found in Genesis 2.15, where God tells the earth creature that it must cultivate and serve, or till and serve. It must step back from its role as partner and dominator to acknowledge that the ultimate creator is not the human creature, but the divine being. The creation narrative is replete with ambiguity, and the task here as interpreters is to tease out and illuminate in our limited time some of these ambiguities. We might say that the specifics of this tale delimit and engage the particularities of life. In terms of how the female is viewed in Western culture, these chapters are pivotal. According to traditional interpretations, the narrative in Genesis 2-7 all the way to 3-24 is about Adam and Eve. It asserts male superiority and female inferiority as the will of God, although, as we shall see, this view is far more rigid and ingrained in Christian theology than in Jewish sources. It depicts woman as temptress who is dominated by her husband. Following are some of the conclusions drawn from this interpretation. First, 
from Genesis 2, 21, 22. Woman is the rib of man, dependent upon him for life. Genesis 2.23, taken out of man, woman has a derivative and not an autonomous existence. Three, based on chapter 3, verse 6, woman tempted man to disobey. Therefore, she is responsible for sin in the world. She is gullible, simple, and not trustworthy. Four, and this is chapter 3, verse 16, a really important verse. Woman is cursed by pain in childbirth, which is more severe than man's struggle with the soil. This indicates that her sin is greater than his. Five, woman's desire for her husband, chapter 3, verse 16, we're back to that verse again, is part of God's plan to keep the woman submissive to her husband and prevent wandering outside the marriage relationship for sexual intimacy. And last, six, also 316, God gives man the right to rule over the woman. An indication of how powerful these interpretations were, and in some places still are, is illustrated in several ways. First, by the witchcraft trials that predominated in Europe and its colonies between 1450 and 1750, in which 85% of those accused and executed were women. A particularly egregious example occurred in 1585 when two German villages were left with only a single female resident each. As a text on women and Christianity comments, and I quote, the early modern witch craze stands as perhaps the most massive and explicit demonstration of misogyny and fear of women in the history of European Christianity. It is also fascinating that in the transcripts of the witchcraft trials, women are often accused of deeds and attitudes which were also ascribed to Jews during this period. It's a very interesting thing to see. Women were said to be particularly susceptible to witchcraft because they are fickle, were constructed from a bent rib, and are intrinsically prone to evil. That Jesus, as the incarnation of God, was male, was said to offer men protection against these qualities. Reading the Malleus Malefactorum, the textbook used by the Inquisition to persecute alleged witches, is to cringe at the projections heaped upon women. Witchcraft, it states, derives from carnal lust, which in women is insatiable. 
A second example of the power and durability of these interpretations are the various sermons given in the second half of the 19th century in the United States and New England. And I was speaking at our dinner table with Professor Duncan um, about specifically about this. Um, ministers and pastors invade against that new medical development, nitrous oxide or chloroform, which given during childbirth, diminish the pain of contractions and pushing. Women, it was asserted, are supposed to suffer pain in childbirth. To prevent such pain is to contravene divine writ and aid the devil. So you can actually find sermons that put forth this viewpoint. Certainly, each of us has heard some version of at least one of these interpretations. Yet a careful analysis of the text itself shows none is supported by the rhetoric of the narrative. In what follows, I will share with you some of the discussion of the Protestant biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble, as well as a variety of rabbinic commentators. We might characterize the creation stories as a tale of life and death, a delineation of an ideal harmony, a paradise, as contrasted with the fragmentary world we inhabit. In chapter one, harmony exists between God and nature, between God and the earth creature, Adam, in its male and female forms, and also between the male and female forms themselves. that will become clearer. There is no conflict. There are no power struggles. The earth creature, the androgynous Adam, is not yet sexually differentiated. Indeed, is not yet a male or a man. Male and female are actualized as sexual beings in chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. Take a quick look. I'll quote the verses a little bit later. Chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. The harmony of Eden disintegrates after disobedience. One sees this clearly in the consequences God meets out in chapter 3. The consequences themselves indicate God's unhappiness with the earth creatures. Nature, formerly a source of pleasure and sustenance, now stands in opposition to human beings. And as the woman is designated to feel pain as she brings new life into the world, the man is told he will suffer in cultivating that which grows from the ground. This is starkly different from the harmony, ease, mutuality, reciprocity, and equality indicated in chapter 1. Rabbinic sources were deeply concerned with what they saw as a contradiction between the two creation stories. In the first, male and female are created simultaneously. So that's chapter 1, verse 27. Right? Male and female, God created them. 
And according to some rabbinic sources, the earth creature in this virgin, virgin was androgynous. Right? was androgynous, not to be separated until chapter 2, verses 22 to 24, the ones you looked at before. For it is in this second chapter that the Hebrew terms change. In the first story, the earth creature was called Adam, from the word Adama, meaning earth. Right? That's why I've called it an earth creature which can be translated as earth creature. But in the second version, when according to rabbinic sources and also according to Tribble, the androgynous creature becomes sexually differentiated, the Hebrew words change. The Hebrew words are ish, meaning man, and isha, meaning woman. So anyone who's familiar with modern Hebrew will know that these words are used all the time, right? These are ish and isha means man and woman. What bothered the rabbis then was this. How could God, who affirmed the equal value of male and female in the first creation story, they were, after all, created simultaneously, given the same function, of subduing the earth and made in the image of God? In the second version, assert to the woman in 3.16 that the male will rule over her. That seems to be a contradiction. 3.16 contradicts the original and pristine equality of male and female as being created together in the divine image. The dilemma is reserved in one rabbinic source the following way. He will rule over you is to be understood not as a statement of general subjugation, but rather a description of sexual physiology. We are constructed anatomically in such a way that it is usual or perhaps customary, for a man to lie on top of a woman during sexual intimacy. That sexual position is the authentic meaning of, and he shall rule over you. Very creative solution to that verse. Other rabbinic sources do view part of the woman's punishment as her being subject to her husband, whether due to his view of his role or her view of herself. Indeed, as Eliada claims, the original harmony between male and female has been radically disrupted, and the alienation and fragmentation of relationships has begun. Power has become an essential component of the male-female relationship. There are some important distinctions in interpretation to be made regarding sexuality, and they lead to different views of women in Judaism and Christianity. According to Judaism, sexuality is a good, as indicated by the term repeatedly used in the first creation story. God saw all that God had created, and behold, it was good. Sexual desire is a good, 
when used for good purposes, which in Judaism means pleasure, the furthering of friendship and closeness between man and woman, and reproduction. Sexual pleasure is a positive good. In addition, according to rabbinic understanding, excuse me, Sexual intimacy occurred in the Garden of Eden, as evidenced in chapter 2, verse 24. Take a look. So Judaism says that the first man and woman were sexually intimate in the Garden of Eden. The text states that one should leave one's parental home and cleave to one's spouse, Jewish commentators understand this to mean the beginning of conjugal relations. This is in contradistinction to most Christian interpretations, which, based on Augustine, read the meaning of the text very differently. Indeed, the renowned scholar of late antiquity and early Christianity, and some of you in the religion department may know this person, Elaine Pagels, in her book, Adam, Eve, and the Serpent, has clearly shown how the arguments in the late 4th century over these very verses, arguments won by Augustine, influenced the course of Christian thinking across the centuries and into our day. According to Augustine, sexuality does not commence until Chapter 4, verse 1, which you don't have, so I'll read you the verse, which says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived. That is, sexual desire is a consequence of the sin of disobedience. It is not a good, but the result of original sin, of rebelliousness against God. Adam and Eve lost their ability to choose the good once they erred. Moreover, they implicated not just themselves, but all their descendants in sin, two main effects of which were death and lust. Although Augustine was careful not to say that there was a biological transfer of the parent's sinfulness to the child, the suggestion nevertheless remained that the sexual act was tainted. After all, a child so conceived was born under the influence of original sin. Augustine went further than Paul in his epistle to the Romans, Paul had written about the sin of Adam and the disobedience of our body. But it was Augustine who made a firm connection between the transmission of original sin and sexual intimacy. Nonetheless, Augustine praised marriage, unlike his predecessor, Jerome. However, he saw marriage and sexuality as best engaged in only for the propagation of children. Pleasure was seen as an unwanted, even lamentable, side effect. Augustine's teachings on sexuality and marriage became, and still are, 
the central tenets of Catholic teaching and deeply influenced the formulations of the Protestant Reformation. Now I'm going to move to the central figure of that Reformation. Luther's The Estate of Marriage, it's a title of a work, was written in 1522 when he was still a bachelor, while his lectures on Genesis date from 1535 and 36, after more than a decade of marriage. Luther got married to a former nun. Luther's arguments proceed from his interpretations of the Bible, as we see all of these interpreters do. We are commanded to be fruitful and multiply and not practice celibacy. Now, of course, Luther was saying this to counteract the notion of celibacy that was prominent in the medieval Catholic Church. Whether or not Luther's views on marriage led to a higher status for women is a subject of debate. While he disapproved of the invectives against women and marriage found in the writings of earlier church theologians, he held to the belief that women's real talent lay in childbearing. Now, of course, that's one thing that we can do that men can't. His view that through Eve's sin, women became subject to men and now must serve as an antidote for male sexual desire certainly is part of traditional Christian thinking, and we find it in some rabbinic commentators as well. But Luther also acknowledged the importance of women in many spheres of life, not only the home, but cities, the economy, and government. He writes of the father's obligation to assist with child care. He actually talks about changing his children's diapers, as well as women's right to sexual relations. Regarding the latter, I'd say the latter, a woman's right to sexual relations, has two sources. Luther adopts the requirements of halakha, or Jewish law, in which the husband is obligated to provide sexual pleasure to his wife. That's Jewish law. It's very, very different from... uh, Western law. She is not his property in any sense. These are far-reaching changes. Yet it's important to keep in mind that in the move from nun to wife, women religious lost personal status. Women who were nuns and then got married did lose personal status once they did so because they were subservient to their husbands. They became very involved in constant childbearing, and they no longer were spiritual leaders. Keep in mind that one reason Luther affirms a right to sexuality for women was that some earlier Catholic thinkers recommended to married couples that they elevate their relationship by refraining from intimacy. So Luther specifically addressed that issue. This was part of the increasing emphasis on celibacy within the church. Jerome, for instance, who lived from 342 to 420, late 4th century, lauded Christian virginity, saying, and I quote, I praise wedlock, I praise marriage, but it is because they produce me virgins. 
The virtue of continence, of refraining from sexual intimacy, Jerome claims, is no longer restricted to men. Why is that? Because death came into the world through Eve. Notice that she's given full culpability, something we'll touch upon later or shortly. And redemption is through Jesus, brought into life by Mary. And I quote, for this reason, says Jerome, the gift of virginity has been poured most abundantly upon women, seeing that it was from a woman it began. And of course, he's referring to the virgin birth. Even the lukewarm affirmation of marriage given by the third century early church father, Clement of Alexandria, mostly fell to the wayside when ascetic practice and theory were strengthened in the fourth century. Jerome's praises of female virginity were part of this fourth century movement. Luther enjoyed a happy marriage, and some ascribe the success of the Reformation partially to the altered status of women. Yet, the traditional interpretations persisted. John Calvin, for instance, insisted on man's superiority and women as helpers obedient to men who were to stay home and shun any public role. The issue of women in the public arena has occupied Jewish and Christian thinkers across the centuries, although in different ways. In early and medieval Judaism, with some notable exceptions, women rarely had a public religious role, although that has changed substantially, especially in the late 19th and in the 20th century. Some of the reasons given are traditionally conservative, modesty, sexuality, women's nature, women were said to have a specific female nature, women's centrality in the home, Nonetheless, women were active in Jewish life, in educational and economic activities, and as part of a frequently persecuted community in Christian Europe, were integral to the community's survival. Here in the United States, just to jump, the establishment of labor unions, for example, owes much to the work of Jewish women. Many changes in Christian groups took place in the 19th and early 20th centuries in the United States when women were founders and leaders of many of the most significant movements for social and religious reform. A well-known example, and some of you may be familiar with this, are the Grimke sisters of South Carolina. Having grown up as Quakers, they were accustomed to speaking freely in mixed assemblies, men and women, an activity frowned upon and considered unchristian in the North. When the Grimke sisters toured New England in 1837 to advocate abolition, now remember they came from South Carolina, but they came to advocate abolition of slavery, the Massachusetts General Association of Congregationalist Ministers became alarmed at the spectacle of women addressing a mixed audience and holding forth on controversial causes such as abolition of slavery and rights of women. They issued a pastoral letter relying on biblical passages, and we see 
the Bible is relied upon for many viewpoints, to confirm the dangers of women as public reformers. Some abolitionists worried that the overt feminism of the sisters would work against the abolitionist cause. The letters of Sarah Grimke manifest a reformist and spiritual approach to reading the Bible. Her defense of the equality of men and women on the basis of Genesis is a strong one. And remember, this is in the middle of the 19th century. She argued that women's worship of men was, from a Christian standpoint, idolatrous. Her famous declaration has permeated American feminism. She wrote, and I quote, I ask no favors for my sex. I surrender not our claim to equality. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet from off our necks and permit us to stand upright on that ground which God designed us to occupy. End of quote. Let me conclude by going back to some of the negative interpretations derived from Genesis chapters 2 and 3 cited at the beginning of this talk. The first one was that woman taken from the rib of man is forever dependent upon him and not autonomous. But we have said that in the second creation story, woman is not formed from the side of man. Rather, she is separated from him, having previously been conjoined. Thus, she is a distinctive, autonomous person created in the image of God. Some Jewish sources, which read the second creation story as affirming that woman was built from the side of man, interpret it not as asserting the woman as ancillary, secondary, or subordinate, but rather as maintaining the dignity accorded her as created in the image of God in the first story. An outstanding example of this is the 1965 essay by the great Joseph Soloveitchik, The Lonely Man of Faith. It's a good thing for religion majors to read. The second negative interpretation states that woman tempted man to disobey, therefore bringing evil into the world. She is gullible and simple and not trustworthy. As Tribble and some rabbinic texts demonstrate, the serpent approached the woman not because she was weaker, but because of her intelligence and ability to engage in good conversation. (laughs) Rashi, the great medieval French-Jewish commentator, gives another reason. He says that the serpent saw saw the couple being sexually intimate. The verse immediately prior says they were both naked and desired the woman. One might ask, where was the man during the interchange with the serpent? He seems to have been a passive observer or else absent altogether. This does not speak well for his supposed strengths, moral stance, and insight. Actually, Tribble writes about that rather extensively. As a tangential point, some commentators see the conversation with the serpent 
as the woman's internal dialogue with her conscience. Now, there are pros and cons for that, for that viewpoint in the text. That the consequence of women's disobedience is more severe than the man's, since she presumably caused evil to enter the world, is the third negative assertion that we had at the beginning. This claim cannot work, however, as the word, the Hebrew root used regarding both the female and the male, is the same, indicating identical pain or suffering. So sometimes it's translated differently, and I believe, I believe I read somewhere that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, uses different terms, although the Semitic root is actually the same. Both the man and the woman are morally accountable for the disobedience. The woman is neither more culpable nor is she punished more stringently. Verse 316 is crucial. Take a look at it. Does woman's desire for her husband or male companion mean God wishes to keep her submissive? Do the words, and he shall rule over you, indicate that man is rewarded for his lack of faithfulness to God by gaining control over the woman? After all, he disobeyed. One can argue that neither is the case. The woman longing for the mutuality and harmony that predominated prior to their disobedience, yearns for the original unity of male and female. But the man will not reciprocate the woman's desire. Where before there was mutuality, now there is disharmony and unresolved tension. What were distinctions in one flesh, the androgynous being, have now become oppositions and power conflicts. We have reached the historical moral universe where disharmony reigns and discord predominates. And I'm just at the end. The pivotal question for us in this brief discursus into spiritual sisters and the impact of the creation story on Western religion is this. Is the second story prescriptive or descriptive? Must men rule over women? Must conflict and disharmony and equality reign in our world? Must women and men struggle over power in a relationship? Is the historical moral world always to be one of aggression, control, and subjugation? The Bible is describing the characteristics of the world we created for ourselves after the ideal paradise. Um, Let me just, I I just want to make sure that everyone understands the distinction between descriptive and prescriptive. Prescriptive means something is normative. It ought to be that way. So that if the verse says, and he shall rule over you, it means that that's the way it's supposed to be. And I'm arguing, together with many others, that the text is describing the way the world is, not prescribing, not telling us the way it has to be. Um, 
The text is describing the world we indeed inhabit, but it is not establishing as normative the universe of chapter 3 in Genesis. The Genesis stories do not instruct us to be contrary, oppositional, and difficult. On the contrary, they clearly ask us to look forward and work toward accomplishing our central task. That goal is to recover, to the greatest extent possible, the harmony and mutuality and reciprocity of Eden. If you look carefully at the text, neither the man nor the woman is cursed. Rather, they are bound to the consequences of their actions. Religion thus becomes the means through which we women, spiritual sisters all, and our men work toward the rehabilitation of human dignity. Thank you. There's so much stuff here. There's a lot of stuff here. Anything at all? Yes. Josh? Oh, yeah. um, you seem to harp on the first part of Genesis, but you're not going into the rest of the stories of the of the matriarchs, where it seems to reverse the role. The women had a very strong influence and actually point of deception um, and uh, manipulation. So how does that jive I mean, in, in this whole group of the Genesis view? Um, that's an interesting question because the, um, the great biblical scholar who unfortunately uh, died a number of years ago, Tikva Freimarkensky, um, writes specifically in several of her works about the fact that the matriarchs and the view of women in the Bible generally is not the patriarchal um, view that it's often made out to be, that the, the matriarchs and the women in the Bible serve as powerful figures in the community, in the ancient Israelite um, communities. Um, I don't think it contradicts because I think the Genesis stories um, they don't limit where human influence can be. And I think if there's anything that's um, sort of a, a final comment on, on what I've said, it would, it would be that. I think reading the text in a prescriptive way, um, like the late 19th century sermons, is, is not correct. And of course, we know that in real life, Catholics and Protestants began to use Right, anesthesia. Um, so I wouldn't see it as a contradiction. I don't know if that answered it completely or if you had something more specific in mind. Josh? Uh, I really enjoyed your talk. I, I think you're very nice to the rabbis and uh, traditional <laughs> women. Because they, they're not always necessarily, uh, you know, giving, giving um, you know, let's say women's sexuality, but on the whole, a very positive. You know, there's, there's, there's certainly a, um, 
and ambiguity in the tradition. Um, but I, I really like what you ended with, particularly in terms of descriptive and prescriptive. prescriptive. I read an article, I believe, a number of years ago by Carol Price that talked about mm -hmm. that this verse, Genesis 3.16, needs to be read in a, read in a particular historical context, i.e. that women were, um, when women were first set comment on, on your first um, comment. Um, there's no question that there are um, negative uh, statements about female sexuality in the corpus of rabbinic work. Um, sometimes when my husband and I will go through some things, we'll say, oh, that guy must have had a really difficult wife. Um, but, but in terms of the viewpoint that one finds in Jewish law, which is really determinative, um, you, you, don't, you don't find that. I mean, you have, for instance, Nachmanides, in, who is a, a star um, of the Middle Ages. In one of his commentaries, he said, um, if a menstruating woman looks into a mirror, um, the glass will break. Now, that was not, that, that's not necessarily Jewish or Christian. It has to do with the time that Nachmanides lived and the fear of blood, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, OK, this, the, second, the second part of, um, of what you asked. Um, now, just remind me. Why would particular traditions take the text oh. descriptively and OK, so I would, I would really um, emphasize what Elaine Pagels talks about in Adam, Eve, and the Serpent. It's such a marvelous discussion. What she shows is that in the late third and early fourth centuries, um, as the church became institutionalized and began to define itself, because that did take um, quite a few hundred years, um, there, were, uh, there were disputes between Augustine and his followers and a group called the Pelagians. And the Pelagians followed rabbinic understanding of sexuality as being a good. And she describes in her work why, according to her viewpoint, and I, it just seems to make so much sense historically, why the Augustinian viewpoint won out. And what she says is that once Constantine converted um, and the Roman Empire uh, became Christian, there needed to be a view of human nature which said that people needed to be governed. And original sin filled that bill. In other words, we were sinful and we need the government to create society and keep us all in line. So she gives a reason really outside of um, the texts themselves, uh, really having to do with the institutionalization of the church, why the Augustinian viewpoint was, was adopted. And it's, I mean, it still is very powerful in, in the church. Anyone else? Well, thank you very much. I, we know you're on sabbatical this semester from Wittenberg University, so... We have an article.